Hello. Thank you for tuning in to the Dead of Night podcast. My name is Inisha. And I'm Cassiopeia. And we're going to dive into murder and crime and disappearing people and kidnapping. I, I think that's it. Okay. All right. That's <laughs> it. Okay. I hope you enjoy. Thanks, everybody. Hello, Cassie. Hello, Anisha. <laughs> okay, so this one, this story is a little long. I I know you remember me telling you that I really wanted to do a story on a black serial killer. And there are a lot more black serial killers in the world than I thought. And this one that I came across I thought was very interesting. Um because this person, he started killing when he was 13 years old. What? So he is one of the youngest serial killers in America. I don't know if he's the youngest, but he is definitely one of the youngest. Um, his name is Craig Price. And Craig didn't really have too much of a bad childhood he grew up in warwick war warwick <laughs> rhode island um where black people made up less than one percent of the population so he definitely had a lot of racism in his life and i feel that made him very angry and just having all these try to explain it have just having all these feelings inside um you know and having people call you all these racist names all the time definitely makes a person pretty angry um but he wasn't born there i couldn't find out where he was born they just said he lived in rhode island they never said that he was born there weird he was born somewhere else and he moved there i don't know but they never said um so he lived with his mother shirley I love that name. <laughs> um, his father, John, and his brother and sister. Um, he reportedly was a happy child who would frequently go out of his way to help neighbors. Um, Craig has a large stature, so growing up, he was a tall, big, husky guy. Um, more like muscular than like big. Um, and he developed a passion for football and basketball along the way. So at age nine, Craig began having deep thoughts about people dying, and because of this, his violent behavior began to escalate. Police later reported that they had been called to Craig's family home on one occasion after a family dispute got out of hand and that Craig would frequently get into trouble. So his criminal record began to expand, and before the age of 13, Craig had already had charges and cautions for breaking and entering, robbery, stalking, drug use, and assault before the age of 13. So wow. this this boy had a really long rap sheet. Um, Craig knew right from wrong, but it was hard for him to avoid a life of crime. So because of this, he eventually joined a youth gang 
So the members of this gang all had convictions as well. And as a group, <laughs> the group, the gang, would go out and burglarize homes. So with this gang that Craig, this, oh my gosh. It was with this gang that Craig began to experiment with marijuana and LSD. So over this time, Craig became a larger child. And by the age of 13, he was taller than all the other kids in the neighborhood. So wow. he was a really tall guy. Um, so like I told you before, uh, when Craig was just 13 years old, he committed his first murder. So he had gotten in trouble before for stalking and peeping through windows of women. His first victim, her name was Rebecca Spencer. So Rebecca was a 27-year-old single mother. She had two young children. Um, on the night of July, well, the day of July 27, 1987, she was getting ready to move. And so she's packing up and um, she had called her ex-husband to come pick up her kids because they were, you know, you're packing, you're trying to get things in order. You got two young kids just running around, mm -hmm. you know, so she called him to come get them for the night so she can get organized and packed without interruption, you know, which is very explainable. She and a friend packed for most of the morning and they went out with uh, her friend's boyfriend. Um, to run some errands, get some ice cream, and just hang out. So about 11 p.m., Rebecca returned home, and she got settled in for the night. She changed into her bed clothes and laid on the living room floor to watch TV. Because at this point, she didn't have any any uh, furniture in the living room. It was, all, it was all gone, but she still had her bed, and she wanted to watch TV. So she ended up falling asleep. Um, so that night, Craig snuck into her home through an open door. She had a door open, like to get some fresh air in. And that neighborhood, like I said, it was pretty safe. So I never said that, but it was pretty safe. <laughs> so she wasn't really worried. Everybody knew everybody. She wasn't really worried that somebody would break into her house. So he went into the kitchen and he grabbed a 10 inch kitchen knife from the kitchen drawer. He walked into the living room and Rebecca was in there sleeping on the floor. And at first, he, I read at first, he just stared at her while she slept. Like he wasn't planning on doing anything to her. Um, but he ended up stabbing her 58 times. What? He punctured her heart, liver, lungs, face, and her head. So after he was done with this, he snuck out and went home. Rebecca didn't live very far, and so he would just go through neighbors' backyards, jump the fence through their backyards to get to his house. Oh my gosh. Um, so Rebecca's body was discovered the next day by her brother, Carl. Her brother lived with her, I forgot to say that. He lived with her, but he worked the night shift. So he was at work during this time. Um, he knew she was dead, but he attempted CPR anyway. Um, the police did a thorough search of her house and also did a neighborhood door-to-door -door search as well but no one saw anything. And after a few months, the case went cold. They didn't have any kind of leads or anything like that. So for this short amount of time, two years, Craig got away with this crime. And he didn't commit another one until he was 15 years old. Um, that's when he decided to kill again. So 
Joan Heaton, she was a widowed mother of two, 39-year-old widowed mother of two. Her husband, John, had committed suicide in 1983, so a few years before. Um, on September 1st, 1985, Craig decided to get high off of marijuana and LSD. And he actually had just decided to break into her home at first mm-hmm. um, because it looked like nobody was there, is what I read. And um, it's believed that Joan heard him when he broke in and she went down to investigate and she found him in the kitchen. Um, she screamed and so Craig was worried he would get caught. So he strangled Joan until she passed out. Then he grabbed a kitchen knife and stabbed Joan 57 times. So Joan had two daughters, Melissa and, oh my gosh, I'll, I'll keep reading. It's in there. Jennifer. Melissa and Jennifer, they were 10 and 8 years old. So the screams from him hurting their mom woke them up and they went downstairs to see what had happened. So Craig attacked 10-year-old Jennifer first. He stabbed her 62 times. And Melissa tried to get help. She tried to run, but he caught her, overpowered her, and he stabbed her 30 times. He actually grabbed a stool and used it to crush her skull. And he stabbed her so hard that the knife snapped and a part of it remained in Melissa's neck. But this was his downfall because when that knife broke, he cut himself. So they were able, I'm getting ahead of myself. So when that knife broke, he cut himself. Um, He ended up covering two of the bodies up and he ran home. The bodies were discovered by Joan's mother and her sister. It was very uncommon for Joan not to talk to her mom. So when they hadn't heard from, her mom hadn't heard from her for days. And so they went over there to to, um, investigate. And uh, they uh, walked in through the back door. The back door was unlocked because that's where he broke in at. And they found the bodies. So her mom and her sister found her, yeah, found her and her daughters deceased. And that's so sad. Like That is so sad. I'm like, I'm not a mom, but like, so I can never imagine what, you know, could happen. But like, as a mom, like coming in and just seeing your, your daughter and your grandchildren like that, it's insane. Um, so the police immediately connected Rebecca's case to Joan. They were found similarly, you know, all the stab wounds and stuff like that. Um, Freaking stab happy. Right. So the case was immediately connected to, uh, Rebecca's case was immediately connected to Joan Jennifer and Melissa's. Um, They brought in a blood analysis person who found a size 13 shoe print in blood. And they also brought brought, brought in an FBI profiler who stated that the murders were frenzied and that it, it was possible that the killer might have sliced his hand on the broken blade left to Melissa. So the police were on the lookout for a person with a bandage on their arm or their hand. So police officers Ray Pendergast and Mark Brandreth were patrolling the area when they came across Craig and they had known him from the neighborhood and run-ins with the law. So he was very well known because he had this long rap sheet. Um, They didn't see him as a suspect at first, but then they noticed that Craig had a bandage on his right hand. 
So during that, he actually did end up cutting himself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. They decided to ask him about it, and Craig told them that he got drunk and punched his hand through a car window on a nearby street. They checked into this, and they were there were no reports of a smashed car window. And they actually drove down the street he had mentioned, and they didn't see any evidence of a car window being smashed. So they knew that that was a lie. And that's when they started to look at Craig as a suspect. So they looked into his previous stalking and breaking and entering incidents. Um, and they also had one of Craig's friends contact them about how he bragged about murdering his first victim, Rebecca. So this was more than enough evidence to obtain a search warrant. So a few weeks later, September 17th, of 1985, police raided the house, but they came up with nothing. Um, as they were leaving, they noticed a shed in the backyard. So they searched the shed and they found a plastic bag with bloody knives, clothes covered in blood and gloves. So on this, the police arrested Craig. Um, his mom asked if she could bring him to the police station. And she cried throughout the whole process, but Craig was unfazed and he remained normal and passive. So clearly this guy has some kind of psychological issues that he needs help with, right? Because right. nobody could do something like that. And then just sit there and be fine with it. And wait, but like, you know what I mean? Obviously there's something else going on with him psychologically that he definitely needs to help. So in his police interview, Craig said that racism actually led to his, to the anger, to his anger and the murders. Craig told the police that he had once been playing outside with his friends when he was 13, before his first murder, when a man screamed at him to get out of the road and called him the N-word. He vowed re revenge on the man. And he, the man was actually seen pulling up to Rebecca's house and it was actually her brother, Carl, who was the one. This is what Craig said. But Carl reported that he never seen, he had seen the children, but he had never said anything to them. He seen them outside playing, but he never said anything. So there's no way to really know if he did or not. Um, so Craig said the night of Rebecca's murder, he made sure his family was asleep and snuck out to the house and into the neighbor's garden and over the fence into Rebecca's home, but was disappointed because Carl's car wasn't there. But remember I told you that Carl worked nights, so he wasn't gonna be there. Mm -hmm. um, so at this point he decided to go home and smoke some marijuana. Um, but while he was smoking marijuana, he decided to go back to the house and burglarize it. When he walked into the house, he realized that the TV was on and someone was sleeping on the floor. He then decided he would kill Rebecca instead. Wow. After that, he talked about the Heaton family murders. Craig said that he had made some noise when he broke in and it woke up Joan and he decided to strangle her. He even mimicked the cries of the young girls as he was killing them. Crazy. He's sick. Yeah, I told you, something's psychologically wrong. Um, so the police charged Craig with four counts of first-degree murder and two counts of burglary. He was actually only charged as a minor because he was almost 16 at this time. 
Um, so on September 1st, 1989, he was sentenced to um, five to six years. So by the age of 21, he would have been free. Craig pleaded guilty and was ordered to take psychological ex examinations and therapy, but he refused. So he remained untreated for any mental illness he may have had. He remained untreated for any mental illnesses he may have had. Um, so if Craig would have served his time and complied with his orders, he would have been released. But since he denied any form of therapy or treatment, the Assistant Attorney General Jeffrey Pine and Detective Kevin Collins instigated the passing of the O'Neill Bill, which would harden sentences for teenage murderers. They didn't want Craig back on the streets where he could hurt someone else. This was not enough to keep Craig behind bars because he was sentenced before that. Bill was passed. So Pine actually traveled to the FBI training quarters in Quantico to learn more about Craig as an offender. While there, he actually learned that there were less than 1% of killers that were frenzied the way that he killed um, the Heaton family. And that to date, there is no effective way to treat them. He returned to court with this information where Craig, Craig was there. He openly refused psychiatric care and testing. So Pine was able to file a contempt of court in 1994. Um, Craig actually openly lashed out and threatened to kill a correctional officer um, in the courtroom. So he was sentenced to 15 years in prison on top of the time that he had before. So this meant that after his sentence was done at the juvenile correction center, he would be transferred to an adult facility when he turned 21. Um, Craig's behavior in jail has only escalated. He's still in jail after all this time. It's only escalated. And since 1996, he has added more years onto his sentence. Wow. In 1996, he bit the finger of an officer, which he was given another year for. And in 1997, he was charged with criminal contempt for not complying with psychological examinations ordered by the state and he was given an additional 25 years to his sentence. Wow. 15 years with probation, so 10 years. Um, in 1998, Craig assaulted another um, correctional officer and was given another seven years on top of that. Oh in gosh. 1999 and 2001, Craig verbally and physically assault, attacked an officer and had four more years added to his sentence. Then in 2017, so we're talking about from 2001 to 2017, there was like nothing, no kind of bad behavior. He attacked another inmate with a makeshift knife. Uh, this inmate's name was Joshua Davis. Craig entered the inmate's cell and repeatedly stabbed him. Davis, <clears throat> excuse me, Davis tried to run, but Craig tackled him and continued to attack him. Davis survived the attack. And on January 18, 2019, Craig pleaded guilty to attempted murder and received a 25 year sentence plus 10 years of probation. Wow. So not eligible for parole until 2044. Um, he's currently incarcerated at the state prison in Rainford, Florida, the Florida State Prison in Rainford, Florida, and he's 46 years old. 
so he will be in jail until 2044, which I don't know how old he'll be then. But clearly this man is psychologically, there's something wrong with him psychologically. Mm-hmm. won't get help for it, so they don't know what's wrong. Right. Uh, I honestly feel like he's doing these crimes because he was close to the end of the sentence, right? Before he attacked that guy in 2017. Jail is all he knows. That's it. Right. He doesn't know. He doesn't know life outside of jail walls. So I feel like he's afraid to be out in public. Like maybe he's afraid to be out with the community because he feels that something else might happen or he's just scared because he's never lived in society since he was 15 years old, right? So, I mean, to me, I feel like, I know they ordered him to do it, but I wish there was someone they could like, force him to do it. Like, hey, you have to do this. Maybe don't do this. But I, I feel like they kind of did that anyway because, you know, he was supposed to do it and that was part of his sentence and he didn't. So this gave him more time. But I also feel like there's people in there that are out there that don't want him to get out. So they're actually pretty happy that he's doing what he's doing. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's my opinion on it. I thought it was pretty What's that? I said that was a good one. Yeah, it was, it's crazy. Like I enjoyed doing it. I might do another one because I've heard of him and I've heard podcasts about him, but just to actually like do the research on him, it kind of gets me into his mindset, I guess, a little bit and to see how he would act and my God, what is with my voice right now? To see how he would act and stuff like that. So to me, that's very interesting. So I'll probably do another one at some point. That'll be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my uncle was like that too. He finally got out of prison, and then, like a month or two later, he ended up getting sent back because he couldn't function with the outside world. Yeah, I mean, you're in there for so long. It's all you know. It's all you know. And that's the one, the life you want to live because you're so afraid to live outside those walls. It's scary for some people, especially if you've been in the system since you were a kid. Right. You know, if you didn't really have a chance to grow up and, you know, to go to high school or to, you know, have those those good relationships and friendships with people, you know, it's it's hard for someone that hasn't to experience that. And it could be overwhelming for somebody and all that good stuff. So I get it. I get, I understand why, why your uncle went back to jail because you know, he was, that's what he was used to. So structure and that's what they were used to. So, all right, Cassie, do you want to tell them how they can find us please? Yes, you can find us at the dead of night pod at gmail.com and the dead of night podcast on Instagram. Yay, did it right this time. Yay. <laughs> and I will make a Facebook. I've been so busy, you know. I, know. I mean, we've 
we've both been busy because this is it's been over a week since our last episode so yeah um yeah so you know we've been we've been busy but we've been doing good so i'm proud of us yeah it definitely has been a lot longer <laughs> yeah. episodes so and we definitely appreciate our uh, listeners the yes, listeners. Canada, or not Canada, is it Canada? It's or the United it's, Kingdom. Uh, you, yeah, United Kingdom. I think it's Canada. It's not, it's it's the United, it's UK. Okay, I lied. I lied. I'm sorry, it's the United Kingdom. I apologize to our UK fans, but thank you, you guys, for the win. It's great. So, yeah. keep listening. I was very surprised. It's amazing that we have viewers viewers listeners not viewers viewers listeners, listeners. you view with your ears it's fine yeah. yeah um but yeah i was very surprised that we had viewers viewers <laughs> <laughs> i did it again you just have to keep it like that now listeners listeners in the uk so that makes me really happy i was actually very excited to share that with Cassie. so um, Keep listening, please. We love the support. It's awesome. People are amazing. All right. I think I'm good now. That's it. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And keep listening. Always keep listening. Yes. Bye, everybody. Be safe. Bye.